This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I am a professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm also the founder and chair of DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. I am your host for this podcast series, which were taken from the 2019 edition of our conference. The Digital Orthopedics Conference, DOCSF, is a unique experience. It's designed to bring together a curated audience of thoughtful leaders from the ecosystems of digital and clinical health to discuss the mechanics of technology adoption while using orthopedics as the case study. During the course of this podcast series, you'll hear presentations, discussions, and at least two of our signature case studies presented at DOCSF19 all focused on how to get technology into practice. In this first podcast, we will hear the first of our two focus lectures in this series. The focus lectures bring together a clinical researcher and a technical leader to discuss a specific technology and its application in healthcare. The speakers today are Dr. Scott Hammond, a neurosurgeon with extraordinary experience in system biology and robotics, who at the time was associated with the Smarter Health Initiative and that team at UCSF. He is followed by Dr. Manish Katari, the famed president of the equally famous Stanford Research Institute. He has launched many health-related startups and done a great deal of work on exoskeletons. The moderator is none other than Dr. Razu Shrestha, currently the Chief Strategy Officer at Atrium Health and a legendary innovator, when previously at UPMC in Pittsburgh as their CIO. You're in for a treat. Enjoy the talks. And by the way, the references to the pink socks you may hear throughout our podcasts is because we shared over 400 pair of Nick Atkins's pink socks as a way to break the ice, create community, and remind us about our shared mission. It was a great way to get everybody engaged and involved at DOCSF19. It's probably one of the largest gatherings of pink sock wearing healthcare innovators in history. We're proud of that. Back to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very, very happy that you all have pink socks. It's our gift to you. Uh, hopefully gift them to the world and uh, use them to continue to meet each other. Uh, you are an amazing group of people. If any of you actually picked up one of the sheets at the front, we intentionally put everybody's name on it and what they're doing, their work, just so you can see the level of quality of people we have here and encourage you to be open to meeting strangers because some of these strangers may have some of the most incredible insights for you that you have, where you will glean the whole week. One person who probably is not a stranger to many of you, can I have the next slide, please? Uh, is Dr. Razvi Shress at the bottom of this. He's the moderator today, and I'm going to ask him to come up. In our world, he is in a world, in the world of digital health and technology. He's a, he's a rock star. He has uh, led in the most amazing growth at UPMC as a chief innovation officer, and uh, the work that he did there is sort of stuff of legend. And now he has taken on a new and very exciting role for him that starts up in just a month or so as a chief strategy officer at Atrium Health, which is a big um, organization. And he'll have an opportunity to really make a difference in the world we live in. He's a well-known healthcare innovator and thought leader, and I'm delighted to call him a friend and also very grateful that he took out time from his very crazy schedule. And two 
aborted landings yesterday to, to get into SFO before they actually let him land. So uh, please welcome Razu Shrestha to the stage. All right. Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Fantastic. So now that everyone has their pink socks on and the right mindset of really embracing all of the innovative work, the, uh, the dramatic shifts that are happening in healthcare, the business models that we're contemplating across the board, I think this is the right time for us to talk about a specific set of challenges and opportunities and one that is related to robotics and healthcare. So as uh, my friend here just mentioned, I have spent a number of years in Pittsburgh, in, in fact, the last 11 years in Pittsburgh. And for those of you who know, uh, Pittsburgh is a hub for robotics. Uh, in fact, Pittsburgh is often fondly called Roboburg <laughs> because of the advancements in robotics that has been made in that city with Carnegie Mellon and a number of other institutions in that specific area. Uh, there's also what's called the Human Engineering Research Lab that I've done a lot of work with there uh, in terms of leveraging robotics for um, things like pharmaceutical delivery, uh, exoskeletons that add, uh, you know, tremendous uh, precision and power, obviously robotics in precision surgery. And robotics in a number of different areas, including now in the wellness and living space and assist assisting living space as well. So there's so many advancements that are being made in robotics. Um, Robopharmacy, another big area of opportunity, obviously in the supply chain area as well. Lots of, lots of advancements. But I'm not the expert here around robotics. I'm just the innovator guy that's looking at strategy, that's looking at investment, that's looking at this re-emerging healthcare space. What I'm really here to do today is to introduce two rock stars in this space of robotics and healthcare. Uh, first and foremost is Dr. Uh, Scott Hammond. Scott is just an expert in, um, in smart health. He's uh, part of UCSF's Center for Digital Health Innovation and I watched a couple of his talks and I was just blown away with the level of expertise that Scott will bring to you today. And I'm sure you'll be left uh, in awe. I also had the pleasure of meeting with Manish Kotari. Manish is the president of SRI and, and Ventures, specifically in SRI. And he leads a lot of R&D work there as well as bringing all of these research um, and, and development work into fruition with serious capital behind uh, a lot of these efforts as well. So with that, I believe uh, we have Dr. Scott Hammond, uh, starting first with his presentations, and then we'll go over to Manish. Scott? So I think Stefano, let me thank him, but when he sent me a text this morning saying, your presentation is amazing, but let's hope I'm delivering what he, what he asked me to deliver. Scott Hammond, um, I'm not at UCSF actually as a neurosurgeon. I'm there because of my background in systems biology. And yes, I've got a deep robotics background in operative robots. I also have our advisor in automation and robotics to Smarter Health here, John Califit, who's in the audience. And I'm a part of Smarter Health, which is the Center for Digital Health Innovation, and it's kind of an odd entity at UCSF or anywhere in the U.S. in that it's both within the medical delivery enterprise as well as the medical school, and we're not discipline-specific. It's horizontally built. So that's where we fit, and we won't belabor this, but UC System as an entity is the largest medical research entity in the world. UCSF, we do pretty well with the NIH and as a health delivery system, and then CDHI fits within there. And then also within UCOP, which is our governing board, 
the Center for Digital Health and Smarter Health has become the go-to for forward-thinking projects and get them implemented within typically 12 months or less. Smarter Health is what we have created to leverage advanced analytics and computational capabilities to create solutions for patients and providers. This is not a platitude. It's not a research for research sake. It's we find problems beyond informatics. We use computer science, and then we create decision support algorithms, holistic solutions that can be deployed at the point of care. That gives you an idea for our workflow, scenario analytics, computation, discovery applications, and then the feedback loop. And it's the feedback loop that's most important. We'll probably talk about that. This is an old PowerPoint, and it says real-world data. We don't actually use that term anymore. We use enhanced patient data. That's what we're challenging the FDA with, and it applies to robotics. As you get new information continually and your models change, how do you validate that? Because you should ideally be getting new outputs constantly based on changing scenarios. And we are actually challenging real-world data both with pharma as well as with our GE partnership. Future robotics and orthopedics, well, we don't think it's about robots. We think it's AI and automating context. And to date, uh, AI hasn't been good at automating context in medicine, but we're getting very close and we're making it actionable. Why is orthopedics ideal? Frequently healthy patients. It's imaging-centric. Unstructured data in the form of images, we've gotten very, very good at making them useful. Um, most recently, GE has actually challenged the FDA, and we've now got approvals for multiple algorithms to be embedded in their scanners to provide decision support. Nobody had done that before. And all of these are not individual algorithms. They're built on models, so they become suites. And we think orthopedics is the ideal place to do this. And then using the ability for robots to both sense as well as to deliver, i.e. end effectors, it's, it's an ideal discipline for us to take what we've now made actionable. Access to patients through inpatient, outpatient setting. You have a very nice mix with lack of comorbidities in a lot of patient sets. You know when time zero is very often on the injuries. And then we, they're incentivized to make themselves better, which is good. We've already identified the next steps. And this is what I've been working with Stefano directly on, on how to apply these in orthopedics. And then we also have a nice mix of chronic and acute patients. So this is, a, this is actually a Venn diagram that we translate. The only reason I'm showing it to you is not about automating triage and defining next generation, et cetera. Um, we talk about trajectories and predictions more than diagnosis. But if you look at the top, robotics and automated interventions, it's the one part of this that we haven't acted on within Smarter Health and Center for Digital Health. And that's where we're looking to orthopedics next. And so that's the point of my interest is we've been working in all those other areas. But the one at the top is most fascinating to me because my background in robotics and then we think orthopedics is the place we can apply that. This gives you a sense of how we work with commercial partners as well as how we view data. You'll notice under enriched patient data, imaging, EHR, sensors, payers, all information from a systems biology point of view is useful until proven otherwise. You can normalize data Unlike how we typically do it in medicine, where when you make it interoperable, very often you lose 95% of the richness that it tells you how an individual patient is doing. So this enriched patient data resource is what we've been building and using technology so that we don't need health information exchanges. And we'll get into that a little bit. But this is our basic model. And then we have multiple commercial partners 
who we look at their business plan, what the market needs, and if it benefits a patient, then how to use this model to help them. This is our discovery platform. I won't go into it, but we talk a lot about discovery for some of the speakers earlier. There's research, there's insights, but then how do you make this actionable at the point of care? We've been using Kubernetes to make this actionable. Um, I can talk to some of you if you're interested in this offline. This gives you our current ecosystem. You can see it's pretty large. Ecosystem probably is applying to me, but you know, Optum, you can, Texas Health, one of our partners here, Rick is in the audience. Uh, GE, Intel, we're Intel's sole site for transformation in healthcare. We've created a pretty good network, and it's all built on our access to our UCSF experts in their domains, as well as the, the data, the ability to collect more data, and then accessing the workflows. This gives you an idea on discovery when we talk about it, because it's not typical for medicine, where it all regenerates so that we can make these insights available at the point of care in real time. Um, not by mining just old data, but by adding new data and then using the outputs. Um, this is where we're working with the, which none of you probably know about, the Pacific Research Platform, CalIT2. It's got a 50-node Kubernetes-based system where we've been now building proxy data sets on protected data without giving them access to the protected data. Sounds crazy, but it's been working quite well, and so we're using that to drive some of our model. The reason I bring this up is this is actually a robotic project for us, but the endpoint is not robotics. Ultrasounds, as most of you know, are very messy. They're unstructured. We've been took an old arm that I designed a long time ago, a robotic arm, and we put an ultrasound endofector on it to start scanning people, sort of like a Roomba, to figure out when do you get enough data with the fewest number of passes so that you can actually know you have enough data to make a read. So we hooked a point-of-care ultrasound on this, and we've been scanning patients. This is a DARPA project. And the intent is, and we're close with some of this, is to be able to have any kind of a wand wave over somebody, find blood, air, and then tell you when you have enough information to make a particular read, then give you some decision support at the point of care. This is obviously going to be useful in the battlefield. So the endpoint is not to have a robot doing it, but we need the robot to control the data that we collect. So here's what we didn't cover today. Degrees of freedom, situational awareness, coding, haptics, end effectors per se, because we don't think the future of robotics is the way we look at robots now. We think it's a integrated system of data. So the future, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the health internet of things, we consider all data useful. So we gather, we've got current projects in oncology where we're gathering streaming data and adding it to our protected structured data, we look for consistency and then see if we get inferences about in, how individual patients are doing. Enhanced patient data sets we covered, smart discovery platform, distributed compute. One of the beauties of this is we don't have to build, and I know UCSF is in the middle of figuring this out, more banks of supercomputers. We can get distributed compute and situational analytics without building new boxes. And then analytics as devices, which is the FDA term, which we like, because then it makes essentially anything that's smarter advice. This will make probably most of you think I'm nuts. We think the death of reductionism, which is medicine, is near because machines are better at heterogeneity than humans anyway. And then what is a, what is a machine in the immediate future? Complex problems are not solved through larger volumes of structured data. As an example, I can give you, having been the PI for the military, 
on inflammatory response and coagulopathy, those are really, really hard problems where we didn't even understand the variables. So we had to start collecting information that didn't seem to be intuitively related because we weren't making any headway. We can now do this in near real time. And then robust methodologies already exist to build dynamically and build and dynamically validate models built on structured and unstructured data. This is where we're challenging and working directly with the FDA right now. So the robotic opportunity, creation of multidimensional longitudinal environment for our patients, practitioners, and researchers, define robots as a combination of sensors, transmitters, UIUX, end effectors, and care pathway aggregators. We spend a lot of time on care pathways because without that, it can't be monetized and you can't measure your impact. Two artificial intelligence to create individualized patient trajectories. And robotics are not about biomimicry. They may be as a tactical, but it's more about understanding the problem differently. And certainly in my uh, area of upper cervical stuff that I like to do, we had to rethink 20 years ago how we were even trying to affect solutions and take different approaches because we were, we just kept, you know, I'm an old guy, so I was taught the old way and we're all of a sudden going, these patients aren't getting better. And so we had to rethink it. And then we talk about the right solution at the right time for the right patient. So the robot of the immediate future, and I think this directly applies to orthopedics, may actually inform the clinician and practitioner when not to use the robot. We like decision support. We like to have, you know, medicine doesn't like black boxes, but the reality is we depend on back black boxes all the time in our clinical gestalt. We say, oh, but my experience tells me. I can't measure that. It's not engineering-driven, but it's engineering-assisted. It's not clinician-driven, but assists clinicians in an evolutionary manner. So very often, we are wrong as practitioners about how to solve the problem. We may deal with the problem. We, we create a huge issue when we say we now know how to solve it. So you don't need to make multiple degrees of freedom in a human wrist in a sub-5-millimeter endofector all the time. You need to look at the pathology and, and how could you actually address that problem as opposed to your own way of thinking. And then finally, it requires a systems approach to modeling with associated and equal stakeholders. Thank you, Scott. Without further ado, uh, Manish, uh, if you could enlighten us with, uh, with your words of wisdom, we can then, after, right after this, um, all go on the stage and we'll have a, a nice Q&A session. Manish, thank you. Hello, everybody. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning here. Uh, all right. So just quickly, briefly, I'm, I'm the president of SRI Ventures. My background, I started my career designing hip, knee, and spine uh, implants at, at HSS and Cornell. Went on from there, like, I, I guess I can say it. I came to Silicon Valley. I was Indian. They assumed I could do software. I, <laughs> I ended up doing software. Uh, fell in love with medical imaging. Did a lot of medical imaging work. And then when the iPad came out, uh, went to... Pfizer and said, you're running these phase four clinical studies at 50 to $100 million a pop. Why don't I run them completely remotely at 25 million? Give me 25 million and I'll do it. They did. And so that was a very successful startup. That ended, I showed up at SRI, which I'm going to talk about right now, as with a desire to build a home health robot, seeing the need coming up. The technology wasn't ready then. We ended up doing a lot of different work in robotics, including SRI has been the place where intuitive surgical came out of. Some of you know uh, some great work that J&J &J and Google are doing, verb surgical. We did some uh, work with early work there as well. SRI itself is roughly $500 million big. It's a research shop only. We don't do products. 
If you use an ultrasound system, it came from us. If you use .com, .gov, .edu, we hosted it for the longest time. And if you use Siri, it came from us. It actually came from my team. As well as if you use a Samsung phone, the Iris Biometric, whether you like it or not, came from my team as well. So with that, I'll start jumping in. Just for reference, I'm a geek. I built, a, I came in there. I, I built robots that use 3D printers. I built, use 3D printers to build robots. So all of the above. I'd like to start by saying, I'm not going to go over this nuance, all of the other stuff, uh, natural language processing. We've been around a long time. We've done a lot of startups. I want to start with this video of just showing what is possible if you want to think about what can be achieved. And this is a project we did with Yama. Today we're at Alameda, just outside San Francisco. And we've been making a robot ride a motorbike. So this is a stock motorcycle. Computer vision, AI, full mechanics, all thrown in. The training wheels are simply because we can't afford, we couldn't afford to build a second robot. Moving forward, we're going to be racing Valentino Rossi. We have since raced him. I advise, I, you should go on the internet and look them up. There's some great videos out there. But why am I showing this video? Just, I really wanted to, we often think about, well, these things are so complicated. There's too much variability. We can't understand. That's not true. And I think Scott put it really nicely where he said, you know, machines are really good at heterogeneity. They, this is something that today we're hitting a point where we're now starting to be able to do things. But before I say that, I would say that I want to ask a question. Does anybody know how many human hands touch an iPad during assembly? Anybody? 325. So I, I think it's important to understand, you know, we're all sitting in a place where convergence of technology is fast. Everything is transforming. Our world is going to be different tomorrow. It's not that simple. These things are harder, take more effort. And I think Scott laid out the complexity really nicely in the previous session, uh, previous talk. Even today, 325 pairs of hands are using are required to get an iPad today. Not one, not zero. So why is that? Why is it that even in an area that's as controlled as that, technology is not able to transform it and be zero? And let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, this is Amara's law. By the way, Amara was from SRI. I didn't know that. Uh, I found out just a week ago looking into him. So we do tend to overestimate the effect of technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. You know, the most famous of these is, you know, Paul Krugman's summary that the internet is going to have no more economic impact than the fax machine did. I think that's clearly been proven not to be true. He was doing this as a time in 1997 when the internet was just coming out. Nobody could have anticipated we tend to do that. We are in a phase where we're in a transition phase right now from overestimation to underestimation. And I think technology is ripe now to transform into things. But let's talk about three or four reasons why. One's a high degree of source variability. Let me just go into it. There is a really high degree of source variability in what you do. When I was an aerospace engineer early in, early, early in my career, I could source my material for the, for the plates on aircraft. 
I could actually test them endlessly. I could simulate them. And then, by the way, I would still drill three or four little holes so that the fracture, any fracture, would propagate along the holes that I had created rather than going into dangerous areas. I don't think you can put little holes in your patients. You can't control their variability. You can't do, do things like that. So you're in a different position here than that. So that has been one of the common reasons why it's been hard for these technologies to vary over. Here's an example of another one of the companies that I helped start that just talks about variability. It's something that's picking apples one a second, half the cost of labor in China, in an unstructured se setting, just finding them, picking them, deciding which ones to pick, which ones are ripe, which are unripe. This couldn't be possible two years ago. It's possible today. So you get a sense that technology now is moving more and more. There's a lot happening in the cloud, but there's also a lot happening on the edge. So you don't have to wait for that 10 millisecond delay that, it, that would cause a problem. Why am I showing this? Because they've got three milliseconds to make a decision. They don't have 20 milliseconds to go to the cloud and come back. You have to start thinking in surgery, this is relevant. So these are all things that are transitioning now. You didn't have Edge AI active two years ago. You have Edge AI active now. These are all things that are different. The other thing, and, and Scott brought it up nicely, is the lack of high-fidelity digital twins. And actually, some of the folks early on in the session here were talking about it. As surgeons, you're not just thinking about how to place it in the bone, but you're thinking about the soft tissue alignment. There didn't exist appropriate digital twins to be able to, for you to do the processing in the, in the digital world and then take it back to the real world. In most of the engineering solutions, you can really come up with strong digital twins very quickly. This is an area of very active research. And what you're seeing over the course of the next three to four years is that very high fidelity digital twins are going to start becoming available. And once this is available, then it is much easier for that uh, transformation to occur. The third, third is very real, and I'm going to talk about it very more. You know, we're living in a world where the hype cycle has been driven largely by Moore's law, which, by the way, is asymptoting a little bit now. But battery life, which is the bottom blue thing, has gone at 2 to 3% a year. So if you're building something like I'm about to show you, that's a real problem. Your batteries are going to be huge. How are you going to do home health robotics or have somebody wear a suit if the battery is going to weigh 10, 15 pounds? It's not going to work. So these are all things that one has to, instead of trying to put under the carpet and hope that your automated solution does what it's supposed to do, acknowledge, deal with, and respond to. And I'll give a case study about how we went about this. So let's give a case study here. So this is a DARPA program, Warrior Web. The image on the left is what soldiers used to wear in the 1900s, right? They have a backpack. They had carried their stuff on it. Guess what? Today, they have a backpack. The backpack is now over 100 pounds. So they're carrying a 100-pound backpack full of five different RF transmitters because they don't know which zone they're going to be in to transmit what signal tons of uh, ammunition and everything else. DARPA created a WarriorWare program to see, and I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit, if they could walk eight hours a day with, and use 20% lower metabolic load than they could if they had no augmentation. SRI was one of the performers in this, and we asked ourselves a question really early on. Do we go Iron Man or do we go Spider-Man? Now, Iron Man can let you do amazing things. I mean, you can dunk a ball, you can jump off, you can fly. Spider-Man needs help every time. He needs a web. He needs things. He's got soft conformal so he can bounce back. So 
if you're trying to do amazing things, like if I were to try and dunk a basketball, I'd need an Iron Man suit. But if I'm trying to use less load while playing a game of basketball, I'd need a Spidey suit. That's what we decided to build. So we went ahead and just give you an image. This is the starting point. This is our research work. And the sound, can we make sure the sound is on? I think it is on. Yeah, it's on. It's great. Uh, so what we have is somebody walking for eight hours with the backpack. This is a jiu-jitsu move. You can't actually give enough force to the person to be able to walk at 20% less load. What we did is put a ton of sensors, and the moment the toe lift was happening, we gave a little push. And that a spring in your feet, like when you were 12 or 11 or 15, and suddenly you start seeing uh, that we could reduce loads. We made this very soft, conformal suit. Now, this is the work we did during the research program. We were one of two performers, Harvard being the others, and we did very, very well, well, well in this. We took this and said, we want to create a company out of this that can help mobility. The fundamental goal we were looking at, and a lot of what people here in this room do, is enable people to be mobile. And arguably, that is the most important thing in the world to be able to achieve. So, I mean, it was something that was very near and dear to us to try and do that. So we came up with this concept of Superflex. Could we build these systems that are very conformal, soft, not robotics, but powered clothing? Because people don't like to put on robots every day. You're not going to be walking around with an exoskeleton on your body all the time unless you absolutely need it. But you do put on clothes every day. Or well, at least some of us who are not at Burning Man do. <laughs> and so... So this question came to us, and this was a hard challenge. We had a high degree of variability, as I was discussing, human variability. We did not have a good digital twin for being able to do this. We did not have motors or batteries that could sustain the powers that you wanted. But this is what we wanted. This was our dream and our vision. And this, I presented this slide here last year, and I'm going to show a little more of where we are now, and I'm going to end with that. We wanted people to be able to sit and stand out of chairs with, with no difficulty. We wanted it to be conformal and wearable under their clothes. We wanted it to not be way less than five pounds. We wanted it to be quiet. We wanted you to be able to go to the bathroom with it on. These are important and very challenging things to do. So first we had to actually acquire a company. I know they do have done some work with UCSF as well, which had to be able to sensorize everything. So we acquired Lumo, which had a great... Uh, system for sensorizing and really quantifying gates of individuals and people uh, and aggregating them. We were able to, by acquiring them, we were able to get really good data on posture and maps. This allowed us to use the sensors in our system combined with their data and analytics to create an, a neural net-based technique that could, could automatically conform it to an individual's needs. This was hard. This was not easy. It, this all We then went ahead and spent a lot of time figuring out the batteries and the motors that had to fit in and be soft and conformal to fit into the system. And these had to be shrunk. They're still being shrunk. We're still dissatisfied with what we have, which is what you're seeing here. We had to create new transmissions. How could we take a motor that is a rotary transmission and do a linear motion and do it in a way that could fit? How is it washable? So I'll, with that, I'm just going to end with a, a, a one-minute video about where, where we are now. It's, uh, and then uh, we can go back to the next session. When I close my eyes, I can see the trick. And I'm done wishing I was back out there. Done thinking those days are behind me. I needed a shift. 
shift was seismic. A fusion of apparel and robotics. The drive to get up and get out there. go on to full sessions. Thank you. So that was fantastic. Both of you really showed us the power of uh, leveraging this area of robotics, not just for you know, surgeries, but really for the spectrum of activities across healthcare. And it was uh, absolutely amazing. Let me start with you a little bit, Manish. Um, you, know, you just talked about apples in so many different ways, right? So whether it's uh, robots picking apples once, uh, one a second, uh, highly efficiently and precisely, to the Apple iPad and uh, Apple Siri, uh, and all of the role that SRI had in contributing to, uh, to, to that. You also talked about Moore's Law and how it's slightly uh, asymptotic right now. It's the, the curve is um, not what we had assumed it would be. So from a uh, Sri perspective, when, when you look at um, ventures, when you look at the future, uh, where is all of this going? You know, you talked about a number of these components, but if there's one specific area that you're most excited about, what is that? That's a great question. It's a long question, but I'll try and briefly summarize it briefly. So I think we've got a whole host of new tools ready for us right now. We've got Let's not doubt it, artificial intelligence or neural nets, machine learning, combined with uh, advances in computer vision are really transforming industry after industry. I think the the big challenge, and, and Scott alluded to it, and I'll start and then he can jump in further, is is really the media challenges right now context. So the, the fundamental question that you want to think about in context is, why did the ball cross the road? We today have cars that can easily avoid the ball. The problem is all of us as humans immediately know when we see a ball crossing the road that there's somebody right behind the ball and that that thing is probably a small kid, right? So we slow down, we look around, we even peer around the corner. The The autonomous cars today will just avoid the ball. So understanding that context is really where the game is at right now. And it's nowhere is it greater than medicine, I would say. Uh, I mean, that's probably the pinnacle of this this need. So that's where a lot of uh, opportunity still lies. I do think we're going through, uh, and to answer your specific question on the venture side, and then I'll pass it over to Scott to go deeper here. Uh, we're going through a place where we're in the, everybody's attached the term AI to everything. And there's a time for that to disappear. And I'm, I'll be glad when that disappears because I think it is another analytics tool that is extremely valuable and has great power and it's a new one. The unstructured data capabilities and the natural language processing all associated with it are all ready today. So this next generation of things that we're going to see is very much there. The last comment I'll make is uh, I think all of us have, you know, in the last year become a lot more attuned to privacy and sensitivity. The medical field was already there. The rest of the world has come there. And so things like edge AI and elements that 
we used to talk about the cloud, cloud, cloud. It's it's being balanced with okay, what can we do on the edge so nothing ever goes to the cloud, and 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 those are all elements that are very hot right now, and we're very actively engaged in. Scott, what are your thoughts there? Um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, context and uh, what was this discussed here? We don't talk about AI internally at all. We literally only talk about automating context. To your point. Even though I think AI is useful, but understanding what goes into that, even uh, we spend a lot of time because we've had to hire our own data science team, right? We're not a li- we're only a life science university, so and yet we're never going to be experts in computer science, but we have to have a core team. Even the pre-processing, how you manage the data, how you handle the data, those are all very hard things. That a lot of it is greenfield space. Um, we see a lot of groups on the peninsula will come to us with their quote-unquote solutions, and it'll be built on you know. 50 patients with pristine data that they got from the NIH. Like, you know, we have to put this in practice in Africa, literally, where the entire context changes. So I agree with you. The other thing where I I violently agree with you is not from an engineering perspective, but the con, you know, we now no longer have a lack of compute power. 10 years ago, we did. Moving data takes more energy than the compute power. And medicine doesn't quite understand that. But we are closer to being at the the curve going straight up with regards to us being able to handle and create models that are different than we currently use. And medicine still doesn't understand that. A lot of medicine is still caught in big data, right? We know analytics is the is what this is. That's the currency. It's not the it's not big data. And I think medicine has to wake up and realize this is actually not the future. It's right now, and we've been proving it. You've been proving it. We think we have been, even with our FDA approvals. Yeah. So, so let's drill a little deeper into um, FDA, right? So you talked earlier about GE and uh, the uh, coming together of robotics and AI right at the modality side. And you also mentioned that as far as the FDA is concerned, anything that... Um, uh, FDA makes anything that's smarter a device, was the quote I think that you mentioned. I'm getting to be a smarter person today based on what I'm learning from you. And I know that's not specifically what you're talking about. But as it relates to the FDA, what, what are some of the challenges and opportunities? Scott Gottlieb at the FDA is really trying to push the needle in terms of embracing you know, these advancements that are me- being made in AI. But at the same time, there are lots of challenges in the stoic work that FDA has been pushing forward. So uh, some, some words around some of the challenges and opportunities as far as the FDA is concerned. Wow, I'll, I'll get myself fired if I answer that honestly. Um, there's, there's too many thought leaders here from my own institution. I don't hate the FDA and I've got my own companies and I've got my own robotics companies, so I have to deal from that perspective. What we're talking about, this idea, when, once you automate context, once you have dynamic models that are continually recharging and the output changes, the FDA is charged with making sure that's okay and safe. It's not an easy question. We know we're not going to answer it through traditional informatics, i.e., let's dumb all the data down so that we can replicate it. That is the antithesis of discovery and moving forward. So, I mean, the best way I can answer it in a short way is we're addressing it personally, outside of the pre-cert program and the Cersei and the public things at the highest level of the FDA, but nobody's figured this out. Um, and I can tell you the large commercial entities, GE's represented here, Siemens, who I consult to, they're certainly not any more astute about this. It's a really hard problem, but the problem's in front of us. It's not 20 years from now. And the one last thing I'll say is we were talking earlier today about, we know that robots can code 
better than humans and we're going to have better coding because better heterogeneity. How do you go to the FDA and how do you go to clinicians and say, by the way, everything that's driving this is going to be self-driven, right? It's going to be automating its own context. We don't have, you have to create the rules. You have to create all these things so you can cross-check it. It's a long process, but unfortunately we've started, I, I don't know, you probably agree, I don't know. We've started late in trying to address this intelligently because yeah. it still has to have a replicable process, but it's one we're not familiar with. Manish, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think there's also, the part that I've, I've been looking at from the outside with a little bit of disquiet is that we're being pushed into, if you think of augmentation versus automation, in many ways, augmentation is the right answer here. But thinking of analytics as devices and everything else, I'm trying to push it into an automation bucket. And that's not necessarily the right answer for medicine. And so I think there's going to have to be a lot of ongoing discussion here with the FDA and others about, look, these things are meant to be augmentative. They, they give you a lot of data. There may be an, a, a very strong role for the physician to play in how, how to judge those things. But if you want to make it a pure device, it's you're creating an automation. And this is something that, you know, we've dealt with a long time. I mean, Siri was meant to be augmentative. The suit that I just showed is meant to be augmentative. The Apple Picker is automated. Those are very fundamentally different paradigms and rules that you apply. And I think that that desire to treat it as a device alone is, yes, it's great. It's providing a pathway so we can at least start the discussion, but I don't think it's the end of the discussion by any means. Let me make one comment to that. And, and I know Dr. Vale, who's a part of um, a project taking existing MRs, using image informatics and machine learning to get better information out of those existing images, to again agree with you, we more often than not fall on augment, i.e. decision support. We're saying it's another tool available. Partly, sometimes we know that tools actually better than your own clinical judgment but it gets you out of the way culturally and all these things and allows us to integrate it. And the reason I brought up um, one of the projects that Dr. Vales worked on is we looked at from our sponsor for this research is it was aimed at radiology. But the reality is the orthopedic surgeons look at different information from the same image and the reports are different. So we said, well, it's not a one thing. We've got a, a core competency we had to develop on what is in those imaging, soft tissue, hard tissue, and the trajectories. And the orthopods look for something different. So we, and now we're adding some NLP to it, um, hopefully more intelligently than we normally do in medicine, where normally it's not the smartest. But it's, to your point, it's to augment whatever they situationally need. But sometimes it's a regulatory workaround when we could, in fact, automate it. Absolutely. And as a radiologist by background, I agree with everything that you just mentioned there, right? So, um, and, and it, you know, because in the media, it's so hyped up and, you know, it's run for the hills, the, the machines are coming. And the reality, however, is AI is not artificial intelligence. It really is augmented intelligence. If anything, we want to take the artificialness of embracing technology out of the delivery of care. Right, so that's that's what it's about. Uh, let's end with a discussion around venture and investments. And uh, Manish, you you lead ventures for SRI, and 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 there's a lot of cool R and D stuff that comes out of it. There's the science behind the applications that are that that you then infuse money into. So how do you balance those two in terms of like really pushing the boundaries of R and D, but also making sure that you're making smart bets in terms of investing in the right areas that will then generate revenue for you? It's, it's a hard, it's hard is the, the simple answer. And I think we break it down. So I'll, I'll just use 
first seven words and then three three different things. So for any given project that comes our way, first of all, today with the current hype cycle, it used to be that five years after a DARPA program was done, people started ventures. Then it became at the end of a DARPA program, people started ventures. Today, I have VCs emailing me saying, hey, a new DARPA program started last week. Uh, we see that you're a performer on it. Do you think we can start a venture? Right. So this is the the the, the elements. Are going. And my answer is usually no, we haven't done the research. We don't know the value we have. But the, the seven or eight words that I our team uses is, first of all, you have to have a large accessible market. And if it's not large and accessible, then it's not a market. Many of the startups do do an element of a mistake where they do one thing really, really well, a very narrow thing, and it's brilliant, but it's not enough to it's a it's a feature, not a not enough to get accessibility to the market. Sometimes working with large entities such as the large device companies is a great thing to do in those circumstances because they can provide you accessibility that uh, you would not otherwise get. The other is sustainable and massive differentiation. You shouldn't be going into something unless it's massively differentiated. And, you know, other people are going to copy you pretty soon. So you better have some sustainability, whether it's IP or otherwise. And the last is the team. But the three things, and now having done this for a number of years, it's becoming clearer and clearer where I'm focusing more on. If you break a venture portion into three buckets, especially ventures like we do, one is technology. The second is what you've all heard many times spoken about, which is product market fit. And the third, which is actually spoken less about, but is arguably the most important one, which is go-to market fit, which is after you have a product that does meet your needs, how do you actually sell it? Most ventures die in that third valley, not in the second valley. And our focus is very largely on making sure that there's things. Last to end that, one of our beliefs, we're a nonprofit, and so one of our beliefs is that if this is addressing a sufficiently important thing in the world and you have the, the technology and the product market fit thought, there should be a way to get to a go-to-market go fit. But it may not be as easy, as straightforward as the conventional business models. So it's better to spend three to six months thinking about that before you go on. Thank you. Uh, Scott? Uh, could you build on that? You talked earlier about the Smart Health Strategic Ecosystem Partnership. Uh, not ecosystem, but ecosystem partnership. <laughs> you did. Um, Boy. <laughs> but so how do you really generate skin in the game and, you know, from a ventures perspective, get to basically revenue? So, so the thing we talked the least about, but is probably the most important, is that we purpose-built a way to work with outside entities, whether they were developers, marketers, whatever, in spite of being in the middle of the public health system. We cannot give away IP. It takes an act of the state legislature to do that. But what we did is create a business model that moves very, very quickly, faster than anybody else in the UC system. And we created dashboards for vetting with the people that are necessary. Do you get what you need to be sustainable. So the old model is, which I've been a, you know, uh, as guilty as anybody, I've got this fiefdom I'm sitting on, come to me, be very nice to me, and maybe I'll work with you. We built it completely differently. And that's why we actually, with one of our largest corporate sponsors, to the tune of almost $20 million, we got the entire master agreement, everything done in six weeks. That's unheard of within, because we started differently. And we're actually organized like a startup that's fully within the med school and the enterprise. So that's how we, and we don't have all the answers, but we had to look at what does each of these entities need to be successful, not just work with us. And that's how we address it. 
That's fantastic. So with that, round of applause, uh, and uh, we'll move on to the next session. Thank you. Well, that was the end of our first podcast, and we found it extraordinary. It was a great session in which we discussed the role of robotics in the future and how they're evolving from being machines that do repetitive tasks to being systems whose role it is to automate context in healthcare. We probably have a better appreciation of the importance of computing that's happening at the edge and not in the cloud, and how enabling millisecond-level decision-making can create different classes of robots. We also discussed a little bit the concept of the digital twin, and we addressed so much more in the discussion with Dr. Shrestha. Our next podcast in the series, which follows this introductory lectures about robotics, will bring us into one of the breakout sessions. The breakout sessions are designed to allow companies that have successfully brought a robotic technology into the healthcare space to share what they learn about that process. In the podcast, we'll be featuring the company Atheon with the tug robots that are somewhat ubiquitous now in many hospitals. It's going to be a great discussion. We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the Doc SF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.